Welcome to The Fleet Code, a podcast brought to you by Fleetio, where we dive into the latest fleet trends, technologies, and best practices. I'm Zach Searcy, and believe it or not, I'm still pretty new to the Fleetio team. I'm actually coming up on my first work anniversary, if you will, and with how much we get done here, I have days where I feel like I've been here a week, and also days where it feels like it's been a decade. But with that milestone approaching, it got me thinking a lot about my first 90 days on the job. All the new names and faces I have to learn, drinking from a fire hydrant of onboarding information, setting up plans for everything that I want to accomplish, and you know, since our minds are pretty much always on fleet at Fleetio, I wanted to know what those first 90 days look like for somebody who's in a new fleet management role. The concept of the first 90 days, you can't see it, but I did air quotes there. The concept of the first 90 days is an approach to job transitions that was popularized by a book of the same name by Michael D. Watkins. The book outlines the essential strategies for how you can hit the ground running from day one, as well as how you can sidestep some of the common issues and roadblocks that come with taking on a new role so that you can get up to speed as quickly as possible. Luckily, in my first 90 days, I found out that we have a pretty sizable group of former fleet managers among our ranks at Fleetio, and two of them agreed to answer all my hard-hitting questions for this month's episode. Mike Eldridge was a many-hatted man in his pre-Fleetio time, working in a leadership role that centered around logistics at a publicly traded Fortune 500 company, and John Hinkle spent some time as a fleet manager for a prominent waste management company in between some of his customer success roles. I got to sit down with Mike and John to walk through what those crucial first steps are when you take on a fleet-based position. Let's dive into our conversation on how to navigate your first 90 days on the job in fleet. So typically we focus on people in active fleet management positions, but today we've decided to go a slightly different route. We have two of Fleetio's own with us. Both of you are on the customer success team, so you're helping fleet managers navigate unique hurdles every day. But something that gets me even more excited is that both of you came from the fleet side to Fleetio. John and Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So could each of you take a moment just to introduce yourself and tell us about the road that led you here, your background in fleet. Mike, you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. I started my career working in the SaaS environment for a healthcare IT company, but I switched gears when an opportunity presented itself to take on a leadership position managing their branch in Northern Maine here where I live. And part of that role was being the fleet manager. Now that was only one of my many hats that I wore uh, while I was there. I was also responsible for all of the employees as well as all of the customers, logistics. Um, so there's a lot that went into that, but obviously fleet played a major role in that considering we used our box trucks to run different routes. Yeah, that's a little bit about me before I came over to Fleetio. And then obviously Fleetio was a great match for me, obviously with my fleet management experience as well as my previous customer success experience. Awesome, awesome. And John? Yeah, my name is John Hinkle. I spent 14 years in my career with a fleet management company and doing a variety of things, but mostly in the customer success space. I then transitioned out of there to go work for a large waste disposal company. Spent a year and a half there, and I realized my time there, I really was you know, more well-suited overall for the customer success side of things, but obviously I love the fleet industry, and so that's where Fleetio came in, kind of helped me take what I learned throughout my career prior to that point, but get back into my, my bread and butter, which is the customer success side of things. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So I know I've told you to today, we'd kind of be talking through the first 90 days of a fleet manager. And I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with the book, the first 90 days, I've got my copy right here. 
what it all boils down to is that while transitions into a new position or a new company are a great time to start fresh and really make changes within an organization, it's also a critical time for determining the ongoing success of a manager. I've earmarked a single page. I'm not going to read the whole book to you, but there's one little quote in the introduction that I think kind of summarizes the context behind why this book was written. And it's, opinions of your effectiveness begin to form surprisingly quickly. Once formed, they're very hard to change. If you're successful in building credibility and securing early wins, the momentum likely will propel you through the rest of your tenure. But if you dig yourself into a hole early on, you'll face an uphill battle from that point forward. And that's kind of like the encapsulation of why I wanted to talk to you two today, because as people transition into new fleet management positions, I feel like it's similar within fleet. Those first few months are really an opportunity for you to figure out what changes you need to make and start taking action to make those changes because that's when things are kind of the most flexible. We'll kind of break this conversation down the same way that Michael breaks down this book here. And it's focusing on the first 30 days and then the first 60 days and the first 90 days and some actions that people can take within each of those time periods to really start setting themselves up for success. And in the first 30 days, something that kind of translates to fleet are you should use that as an opportunity to try and understand the situation and communicate your findings for whatever the situation is with leadership but it's also an opportunity for you to identify your key priorities and use those as an opportunity to set expectations for leadership. So you're showing them what changes you wanna make and how you're planning to make those changes. So starting with the first one, try to understand the situation and communicate your findings with leadership. You kind of touched on this, Mike, so maybe you start out, but what did your fleet look like when you arrived? What was the situation that led to your hiring? The fleet was definitely in rough shape, both from a mechanical standpoint and both an appearance standpoint. Actually, my second day there, we had two old diesel trucks and they were parking them inside our warehouse for whatever reason. And the diesel tank let go of all the diesel inside of our warehouse with all of our products. So that was my first issue I had to address. So obviously we had to clean up that diesel and then uh, that vehicle was out of service for quite a while. So that was, you know, I think the best kind of highlight of where the fleet was when I took it over to the point where literally the diesel tank fell off of one of my vehicles inside of our warehouse where we should not have been storing it. You know, it really was, in my opinion, it's the culture that the previous leadership had established when it comes to fleet. For me, fleet is all about the culture that you have with your operators and the trust that you have between each other. And the culture prior to my arrival was, you know, we have a job to do, we have routes to run, you know, don't report that, you know, that'll be fine, right? So there were definitely some safety concerns, um, definitely some uh, dice rolls and risks that were taken that I, I wouldn't have done personally. And the operators honestly were disengaged. So really my focus, because I didn't have a whole lot of, um, you know, fleet experience at that point, or even mechanical experiences, you know, I needed them. I had to rely upon my operators to tell me what was going on. I had to rely upon my mechanics to be able to communicate with me, you know, what needed to be done to, to get my vehicles back where they needed to be. Honestly, it was a lot of listening and a lot of trying to get the point across that it's no longer like it was before. I need you to tell me what's going on. I will fix it. We will figure out something else to continue to run our business, but we're not going to be unsafe and we're not going to not report the issues that are occurring on our fleet. It was definitely a crash course, that's for sure. Now, did you try to open up those channels of communication on an individual basis or was it like just a, a general address to the operators as a whole? 
I did, uh, you know, kind of an overall address when I first got there, but there was many other topics that we were covering outside of fleet. So honestly, I had my best success on an individual basis, either with the operators directly or with my supervisor team that kind of oversaw them to start to change the culture. But really, it's, it was a matter of not only listening, but then the follow through, right? Somebody reported an issue. We followed the proper protocols to get it fixed. We made sure everybody was safe. So took some time to build that trust with them. But once they started to see the results, things definitely started to shift in the right direction, which was definitely key to turning that fleet around. Yeah. Yeah. John, was your experience similar? Did you go into a similar environment when you started out? There's definitely some similarities. I took over two different locations. One of the locations was very well run. The other one was a mess. It had older trucks. The mechanics really didn't track anything that they did. So I didn't have really good line of sight as to you know what our metrics were at that site you know the whole garbage in garbage out scenario and there was definitely at both sites a us versus them mentality between operations and the fleet so those were the two big things i had to tackle right away um especially trying to open up that line of communication between the operations you know the the drivers and the mechanics that are fixing it because it's we're all in it together to accomplish one task, which in this case was to pick up trash. So that was the first thing to, you know, Mike's point about culture, big thing. We didn't have so much of the safety aspect, but there was definitely a lot of culture issues that needed to be addressed around more of mindsets of, you know, only doing certain things or assuming one side is always in the wrong. Bring those teams together to realize if we just communicate better and realize we're all on the same team, we can get to where we need to be quicker and more effectively. Those are the big hurdles I had to address. So it sounds like both of you probably had a little bit of trial by fire when you first get in. Was there any sort of training that was available to you? I know you both kind of went into new fleet management roles. What kind of training existed for you? Or was it mostly just kind of a, here's the situation, try to figure out how to gain control? Yeah, I mean, for me, here are your resources, right? So here's the, our, the vendor. So we, we had a third party vendor that did our, our fleet repairs. So, you know, their contact information. I got a, I would say, 15-minute overview of how they wanted me to enter maintenance into their system that they were utilizing, but that was about it, and then everything else was trial by fire. My supervisor core at the time actually was really strong, um, so I definitely leaned on them a lot for their experience, as well as my team and um, the mechanics at the third party that I utilized to really help me understand. So it was a matter of admitting, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need all of your help. Uh, Let's figure this out together. Is kind of the approach that I took that seemed to work pretty well. John, what about you? I had about three weeks right off the bat where I job shadowed a part of mine at another location. And then it was really trial by fire. Same situation as Mike. I had almost no mechanical background coming in. I used that to my advantage. I pretty much started every conversation with my mechanics as, you know, I don't know anything about vehicles or trucks. So teach me. That accomplished a couple of things. One, it, it got me quicker familiarity with what I was managing early on, but it also let the mechanics share with me their knowledge and early on kind of show me what they know. And it kind of became a running joke. One of my guys, I don't want to swear on a podcast, but like his favorite line was that I didn't know S about trucks. Um, and it, it's true, but it, it kind of became a term of endearment a little bit too. But yeah, I just, you know, knocked down those walls. I'm, yes, I'm a fleet manager, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, they're the ones who are really doing the work. And I tried to establish that early on. Were there any other conversations that you had with people or intentional moments that you feel like really kind of helped you break through with your team? So reached out to the operations people at my sites right away too. Like I said, it was operations and fleet. And we all had the common goal of picking up trash. And I latched onto them early on, our route managers, especially to try to understand 
you know, I had industry knowledge from a fleet perspective. I had no industry knowledge from a, a waste management perspective. I didn't understand the different lines of business. I didn't understand a thing about trash other than I put it out my curb once a week and it gets picked up. So I used them to really help me learn that side of the business. And I think that helped early on establish that rapport that fleet is not this standalone entity that operations can't trust. I tried to establish that trust between the two right away. And it helped me learn my job quicker as well. You know, I think John made a really good point as far as, you know, not being afraid to admit what you don't know in asking a lot of questions along the way so that you can learn because people are very willing to share with you the knowledge that they have and, you know, the jobs that they do. I would, you know, talk with the vendor that I used to fix the vehicles to get a better understanding of, you know, what was going on with the vehicles, my operators, my supervisors. I did reach out to a couple other branches to touch base with their fleet managers to try to get some ideas as far as what they were doing. So just really not being afraid to say, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing, so let me figure it out and let me ask the questions that I have as they come up to start to build that knowledge to be successful. Cool. Well, so moving on to the next section in the book, he says that it's all about determining the definition for success and creating long-term goals for your fleet, identifying the resources that you need to succeed, and then presenting your early assessments to the team. So don't write all these things down and then keep them to yourselves, share it with others and really let them know how they can help you achieve all of those goals. So when it comes to trying to figure out the definition for success and creating those long-term goals, how did you communicate your fleet successes with those outside of fleet? So if you're talking to people in operations, how did you kind of show them what you were measuring and what you were hoping to achieve? For us, it was actually really easy. We actually had a yearly audit that actually came from our corporate head office. So we had someone that was outside of my boss that would come in and it was like a two-day process of going through pretty much all of your records. They'd look over the vehicles, they'd watch the operators do their inspections. At the end, you actually get your audit score. Out of 100, what did you get? And that's what's published company-wide. So anybody could see at each location, essentially, how well the fleet was being run. So as far as like kind of communicating how we were doing, well, they kind of had that covered and uh, had figured out everything that they were going to judge us on. For me, as far as you know, what I consider to be successful, one is safety. Safety was always first for me. Really keeping that focus on the safety and making sure that you know, we were 100% compliant with our preventative maintenance intervals because that goes a huge way of making sure that those vehicles are safe and double checking them. But the other part for me was also we had our pre and post checks with the drivers, which anybody who's managed the fleet knows that's a bit of a cat and mouse game where they don't want to do it. It wasn't at a very granular level like they would do, but it was enough to say, hey, if that looks like this, that vehicle's not safe, right? So kind of taking their point and then challenging them to increase their knowledge on the matter so that their pre and post trips were valuable and we were catching potential safety issues before we went out on the road. John, did you have something similar? We did not have a fleet audit per se. I reviewed our work orders daily. I always had kind of an eye on what was going on, what my mechanics were working on. I could spot any trends. If all of a sudden I saw four or five trucks with the same issue, I could dig into that further versus waiting for a quarterly audit, for example, to identify that after the fact. But then also, if I saw a mechanic who might be having issues with our specific fleet management information system and maybe not issuing parts correctly, I could address that right away after three days of seeing a repeat issue and get that behavior fixed versus if I waited till an audit, 
I might have three months of bad data from a part standpoint that I have to fix. And now I have a three month habit that I have to correct with that mechanic versus a three day mechanic. So from an audit standpoint, it was more of just kind of an ongoing, always keeping an eye on things. Yeah. Yeah. So within that, you probably had what you knew was an acceptable metric or an acceptable percentage that you needed to be hitting. How did you communicate that with people above you? Or how did you talk through those successes or even the failures with people outside of you who was kind of in the granular day-to-day of that? Yeah. Um, we had a daily huddle with our operations team at our sites. So it was the route managers, our district manager, myself. And we went over a couple of things there from a fleet perspective. One was just our core metrics that we tracked, things like uh, PM compliance, downtime, a variety of other things. But because I was looking at our work orders every day, I could also bring to that huddle, if I identified anything that any of my mechanics were doing that were out of line, for lack of better terms, you know, maybe against policy or just even just a failure of understanding a certain thing that we could address that would have impacted the, the operations team. So it just kind of brought to that team, again, that cohesiveness that we're all one group. And then I would also flip the script and bring the similar things to the operations team. You know, Mike referenced the pre and post trip and yeah, spot on pencil whipping is um, the name of the game there. But if I ever had a driver who was down on route with a blown steer tire or really any tire, I would go pull up that driver's last week of pre and post trips. I mean, I would look at them and then I would bring it to the route manager and say, hey, this driver, you could tell that he is just pencil whipping his air pressures every day because somehow miraculously all 10 tires on his truck have the same air pressure at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And I'd point out, you know, if he's actually taking accurate air pressures, there's a chance he's going to identify one of those tires is not well, write it up, we're going to fix it, and he's never going to blow on route and have three hours of downtime, which directly impacts the operations metrics. So, you know, I would bring their issues to them. I'd also bring our issues to them. Yeah. So I've heard safety and efficiency and of course, vehicle uptime. Was there anything else that you were always working towards within your fleets or something that you were working to try to improve in especially your first few months? Uh, Getting hands on cost for sure. Well, I'm sure every company is, you know, very cost focused. As I mentioned that one site, especially we had very poor tracking of anything. So I couldn't even really have a good grasp on what we were or weren't spending. So just trying to get hands on that, get everything going in so that I knew where we were at and I could figure out if we were on target or not from a budget standpoint. Yeah, mine was, uh, mine was the opposite of that. So budget was not a concern for me when I first took over at all. I actually spent quite a significant amount of money on my fleet getting it back to baseline from where it had been left prior to me taking that over. Really, I didn't start doing that till I had my vehicles back to the baseline. They were on their routine intervals for preventative maintenance. Kind of back to that square one, right? And now we can start to track, all right, can we maintain this? But for me, the first 60 to 90 days, that was just a matter of catching up back to where we needed to be. And I think that was important for the long-term success that I had there under the fleet management, being willing to bite that bullet on the front end so that we could be successful. Yeah. That's kind of a perfect segue into the next takeaway for the first 60 days, which is identifying the resources that you need to succeed for your fleet to find success. So was there one thing, Mike, that you think helped you improve your fleet the most? Yeah, it was just a willingness of everybody to come together as a team, change the culture. There was a lot of moving pieces. I definitely couldn't do it alone. And everybody came together to ensure that we could hit that initial goal of let's get these trucks back to where they need to be. Definitely took some time. We got there. (laughs) When my fleet audit actually came the first time, I actually had five vehicles go down that were actually going to be part of the audit. 
So the night before, it was pretty late night, kind of scrambling around, getting some kind of replacement vehicles in place for the audit itself. But, you know, we kind of stuck to our guns and it kind of held that line as far as that new culture of making sure that we addressed any issues that came up, regardless of whether they were when the audit was coming or not. It was not relevant. We just had to do what we had to do at that point. And then, John, on your end, where you're having to be a little bit more budget conscious with the processes that you're implementing, was there something that you did that you found to be extremely valuable? Or was there something that you wish you could have done that just wasn't quite an expense that you had the room for at that time? You know, fleets are always a direct reduction of revenue at at pretty much any company. But there is a fine line between not spending money and having your trucks break down. You know, any fleet manager would probably say, if I could get a little more understanding from the people who write the checks that I need to spend some money uh, to really get where we need to go, that would be ideal. Even something as simple as just having a little more flexibility to farm work out to third parties to balance the workload required for our in-house mechanics. When I first showed up, we had a truck literally sitting there with in the middle of a head replacement job. And then I had to get a new mechanic up and running. You know, that's a 40-hour job. And in a site that has three mechanics, it's pretty much consuming one person's time. Whereas if I could just send that out to a third party and have all my mechanics focusing on other things, that would have created a much better environment to allow for flexibility with handling breakdowns and and road calls and things like that. I feel like that's something that we kind of see a good bit where it's just people trying to communicate the needs that they have for their fleet to people who really view fleet as kind of this cost center. And it's obviously a hurdle, um, but yeah, that's interesting to hear. So the the last takeaway for the first 60 days is that now that you've taken in all this information and you've seen some opportunities within the fleet, present these early assessments to the team. And I think it's important that there's a degree of sensitivity to this. You don't want to present these while talking down the previous structure or the previous people that were in your position, because there could be relationships that were strong before you got there and you could sour your relationship with people. How do you communicate problems or opportunities that you see within this team while maintaining professionalism and and not like possibly offending people who could be responsible for some of the current processes. Well, like I mentioned earlier, I came in with zero industry experience and zero mechanical background. So that benefited me in that type of situation too. You know, if you approach the like, hey, explain to me why we're doing this, because I don't even understand, people will start explaining it to you. And naturally, a lot of times your mechanics, if they think a process is stupid, they're going to mention it to you while they're explaining something else. So you could draw out from those conversations where things need to be addressed without even having to just point it out yourself. Not only can you then expand on that conversation where you didn't even bring it up in the first place, but then if you do act upon that, it's a win for the mechanic because they brought it up. And it's a win for you because they've brought it up to you and you've done something about it. So you show them that you're willing to make changes where maybe somebody else didn't. I try to naturally draw those things out versus just coming in and being a bulldozer and saying, this is the way we're going to do it because I say so. If you can naturally draw those conversations where people just kind of tell you how they feel about things and, and just be willing to listen to those and act upon them. Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, what John said there. I think it's not a direct conversation that you have to have with the team or, or anything along those lines. You know, even if you have components within the team that were part of the problem prior to you getting there, you, know, you can't assume that was driven by them, right? You know, in my opinion, a lot comes from the leader. But I think having your own leadership kind of come in and take that over over time and showing them by what you actually do and the actions that you take, 
can draw that out of them in, in a different direction. Like, oh, the culture has changed now. I can voice my concerns about this. I can, you know, bring this to Mike and something's actually going to change. For me, it was leading by example. Like, this is how we're going to do it. Having an open door policy, like if you disagree with me, let's have a conversation about it. But for me, it was a pretty smooth transition approaching it that way. Good, good. Yeah. And John, to kind of your point earlier, you come in and admit this humility, this you guys are the experts. You guys know how to do your job best. I'm here to help you and to provide you with the tools for that. And so I would assume that by coming in with that mentality, then guys are more willing to come to you and say, hey, I think this new process that we're doing, it's not going to work. And here's why. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, Mike hit the nail on the head. The culture is what the culture is based on who said it. And people are just going to figure out how to survive that. But if you give somebody a better culture, they will thrive in that in most cases. Very rarely did I ever just say, this is the way it's going to be. I would draw people into those conversations and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing it this way. Tell me why that won't work or why it will work. There are situations where you do have to just say, this is the way it's going to be, like with safety. you know, Safety can't be compromised. But if you have established a culture of bringing people in and having the team approach, you gain credibility for those moments where you have to say, this is the way it's going to be. And people are more likely to buy in on those times because you have allowed them to be so much more of a part of the conversation the rest of the times, at least in my experience. Absolutely. So now we're making it into the last section of these first 90 days from days 60 to 90. And two of the key takeaways that fleet managers should be focusing on is finding opportunities for early wins in areas important to leadership. Another thing that fleet managers should try to do in these first 90 days is develop leaders within your team and help accelerate their growth. And we've really already touched on a couple of those different things, but let's start with developing leaders within your team because that feels kind of like an extension of what we were just talking about. How do you identify the people on your team who are going to help you move the needle? I think there's natural leaders in any group and you don't have to be this master psychologist to figure out who those are. You just pay attention a little bit and you can see who the others listen to and respect. And then from there, you really just start to work with them and build them up into positions of leadership, either natural positions or actual positions. Bring them into decision-making processes more frequently to help them give them sense of ownership of things and if possible, even elevate them into actual positions of leadership give them a position like lead tech or senior tech, something that actually is symbolic and has value to it, both monetary and title. And it shows them that you recognize their position and their value in the organization. And it only furthers that trust that you have with them and helps them come along with you. I would agree with that. You know, for me, a leader to your point, John, is somebody that has the personality and the respect to influence the rest of the team either in a in a positive or negative way but the leaders are the ones that understand the power that they have drivers i promoted a supervisor after we had some changes while he was still a driver he actually got back early from running his route one morning and i had a guy break down four hours away and we really didn't have a whole lot to cover that route if we were to call him back so he actually did an eight hour turnaround run with me to trade that truck out even though he could have gone home because he understood that it helped the team overall and that we had a guy up there that was kind of stranded and we needed to figure that out so he was willing to jump in and take care of that so to me that solidified in my mind like he was going to be my next supervisor when that opportunity arose because he just kind of embodied all of those uh, different attributes so outside of promotions and pay raises, which are obviously big incentives for people. Are there any learning opportunities such as certifications or classes that you can offer to leaders on your team to help them grow as a tech or as an operator? Oh, there definitely is. And we 
we had that request come up quite a bit because these guys want to solidify their place in not just the company, but in their career. You could become certified DOT inspectors. You could get Cummins certifications to be able to do warranty work on Cummins engines. Mac has their own certifications, you know, all sorts of things that if a mechanic is willing to put in the time and you're willing to pay for it, that you can certainly put somebody through it. Absolutely. And we had, so obviously we didn't have the mechanic side, but we had what we called the, uh, like a trainer certification. So that was for, you know, somebody that wasn't a supervisor, but they, you know, were kind of heading in that direction and they would be certified in being able to train the new hires that came on. Right. So they'd actually ride with them for a 10 week period to train them on not only the job, how to drive all the different things that basically encompass that role. And we'd send them out for a week to go through that training and get that certification. Cool. Was that something that you let people know up front, hey, these certification opportunities exist? Or was it a, as people came to you, you kind of gave them the resources for it? We definitely kind of put that out there. Be like, these resources are available. If you're interested in it, if I didn't think they were ready, we would come up with a plan together on how to get them ready so that they would qualify for that. It was available to anybody that was interested. And that was kind of the approach that we took. Like, if you're interested, you know, if you're not there today, let's figure out a plan to get you where you want to be. And obviously kind of those future opportunities that you're looking for. Yeah. The other part of what you should do within the first 90 days, and we've touched on this a good bit, is find opportunities for early wins in areas important to leadership, knowing that if you can create a feel-good moment for people who you report to or who kind of work in tandem with your department, then it's an opportunity to really create a positive experience for both of you. And that will build upon itself as you move forward. I know we've talked about safety and cost. Are there anything else that's really important to people who are outside of the fleet sphere or people who wouldn't typically be involved in your decision-making processes? The company I worked for, I mean, they, they could find a metric in anything. There was a handful of core metrics that we tracked that safety and cost really didn't factor into it, but it showed kind of the health of the fleet. And those got ported on on a weekly basis. And we measured them on a 13-week trend, and it got sent all the way up to the area leadership. So, yeah, there was definitely things that had eyes on well outside of fleet that weren't just specifically safety or cost. For us, our third one that was focused on outside of those two was appearance. Your truck didn't just have to be safe. It had to look good because they were essentially rolling billboard. They were a representation of the image of the company. If you send a, a rusty paint falling off vehicle down the road, that looks bad for everybody, whether they're in fleet or not. So there was a very big emphasis put on that all the way from the CEO down that our vehicles were to maintain a high level of appearance. As far as cost was concerned, that was definitely an added cost outside of the preventative maintenance and the kind of safety side of things, which I'll be honest, as a fleet manager, was a lot harder to balance. Do I replace a perfectly good bumper because it's all rusty or do I try to get a spray can and try to make it look good enough to try to save some cost there? So it's not really the same as the safety side where you're, you're unwilling to send a vehicle out because of XYZ. It was... Is that little rust spot really, should I really hold that truck back for that? So it was kind of a whole other element that we had to kind of work around as well. So obviously that's the first 90 days. That's kind of some steps that you can take to help set your fleet on the right path to help you kind of figure out what you need to do to make your fleet better. But the job doesn't stop there. You're not a fleet manager for 90 days. It continues on. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but how frequently should a fleet manager be communicating with their team after the first 90 days or after they first kind of onboard and have those preliminary meetings? Is it scheduled meetings or is open door policy sufficient? What do you recommend there? You know, open door is great, but get out of your office, go walk into the shop, talk to the mechanics, ask them what they're working on. 
talked about this earlier, ask them to explain what they're working on, their thought process on it, offer to help them on a job. Like, you know, I said I was not mechanically sound, but I certainly can put some muscle into something. Get your hands dirty. Show them that you are as much a part of this team as they are. Talk to them personally. Ask them what they got planned for this weekend, what they did this last weekend. If they're going on vacation, ask them where they're going, you know, things like that. Just get to know them. That can't only be done if you're just sitting in your office and tell them, come find me if you need me. Because generally mechanics want to fix trucks. And if you're in your office, you're not anywhere near the truck. So you have to go to where they are. It's a really good point, John. And I think that you have to think about your open door policy as a two-way door. Yes, you can always come and talk to me in my office when you need to, but you have to get out there, you know, just check in with them, see how their day is going. I used to walk out as my guys are getting back at the end of the day, I'm out in the parking lot as they're, you know, cleaning their trucks out, check in with them, see how their day went, you know, see how, if there's any issues with the vehicles, right? So it's just like that natural conversation that you have with your team and you absolutely have to get out of your office in order to get any sort of real value out of that and engage with them kind of where they're at. I like the idea of the door going both ways. That's a really solid analogy or metaphor. I never really learned the difference between those two. So that's all the questions that I had for y'all. Was there anything else that you wanted to include or words of advice or things that you wish you knew as a new fleet manager that you want to send out to people? Something I wish I had known as a fleet manager, and I think I knew it, but just to add on to it is, you will never be able to make everyone happy. You know, if your costs go up, then finance is not happy. If your costs go down, then that means something might not be getting fixed. Always going to be somebody who's not happy. And so you have to accept that and shift your focus towards other methods of being successful and figuring out what those are. I mean, I guess all I would say from my end is just understanding that as the fleet manager, your leadership style is such an important component of that and of your team's success and to really kind of find what your leadership style is and what your long-term goals are so that people have that thing that draws them in together as that team, because that's all going to start with you right in the center as their leader. So it's not even necessarily about fleet management as a role. It's about your leadership style. How successful are you at bringing people together? Ultimately, in my opinion, is going to result in how successful you are at managing that fleet. And that's the fleet code, y'all. As always, a big shout out to Mike and John for taking the time to get asked 1,001 questions about their fleet management experiences. It's always super fun connecting with other folks in the industry, but getting to tap into all the knowledge we have right here at Fleetio is just a special little treat. So here's a quick rundown of the highlights from our conversation. Listen to your people from the get-go to build trust and understand the issues they and you are up against. Know what you don't know. Take advantage of any resources and training that you can get your hands on and ask the right questions to the right people. Get involved and stay involved. Start building processes and metrics that you can dig into and stay on top of them so you can have consistent visibility into your team and your operation. Make sure that you maintain that visibility for everyone else to see as well. Present your findings as you go and work to create plans to address them in a positive, professional, and forward-thinking way. And as you develop yourself as a leader, start finding other leaders on your team that you can also develop and elevate into leadership positions. We'll be back next month with another episode full of tips and tricks from other fleet vets. In the meantime, check out the rest of season two if you haven't already, and be sure to subscribe on your podcast service of choice so you don't miss any fleet code goodness. Be sure to join our newsletter and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to stay up to date on all things Fleetio and get access to all kinds of free tools and resources. 